Resolve to let God know that you have the guts and the will to do it alone. Resolve to fight for yourselves and for others and for those you love. Not part of God within you will be fighting with you all the way. Master Shelby. Yes, sir. We'll continue our discussion at a quieter time. Fair enough? Aye, aye, sir. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and we're almost at the holiday season. We've got some plans for the holiday season, but it's November, we thought we would ease into that with, with kind of a light holiday movie. Absolutely. Jump on in, the water's fine. <laughs> and also... um, we have to bank some shows because I'm actually going to be out of town for okay. a week or two. Very nice. Because Mrs. Darling Wife and I are going on a cruise. Oh, that sounds lovely. It, it should be. We're really looking forward to it. But I thought, you know, I should get in the mood for that. I should sort of kind of put myself in that mindset. Absolutely. So we we're just, just... We're leaving the spooky season. You're moving into the holidays. You need something right in between. Sounds good. <laughs> That's right. So we decided to go back to 1972. And the Poseidon Adventure. Oh. <laughs> oh, context just slapped me upside the head there. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, there are some very important distinctions. We're going to be on a cruise ship. The Poseidon was an ocean liner. Very different purposes, very different designs. I'm sure there's nothing in common. Absolutely. This is just fine. Where are you headed to? <laughs> I don't think it's the Adriatic. We're probably fine. Yeah, you're fine. Don't worry. I can see Mrs. Darling Wife from where we are recording, and she does not seem amused by this selection. Yeah, we're, we're, getting, we're getting the podcast version of our producer tapping on the glass and waving a finger. <laughs> <laughs> but this is another one of those movies that I saw when I was way too young. I'm not surprised. This but, seemed like that kind. But... But this one actually pushed past a certain threshold, because this is a movie that I saw when I was so young that most of it, well, most of it just washed over me. Most of it went way over my head. And when I say most of it, I mean practically absolutely everything about this movie. I remembered it was on a boat. I remember there was a kid a little bit older than me in trouble as part of the, the, the danger. And I remember that it had Ernest Borgnine, and there was some kind of a great sacrifice at the end. Okay. And that's pretty much all I remembered about this movie, apart from one or two key shots that I probably remember more from the trailers than from having seen the movie in the Franklin Movie Theater in January of 1973, about a month after the movie opened. And a couple of weeks after I turned seven. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a when for you. There are some movies where I, I watch them now and I think, how did I end up as a movie fan? Why didn't seeing this when my age was in single digits just turn me off the very concept of movies? Uh, I don't know, but here it is. Ah, yeah. I, I'm fascinated because I actually have a connection to this movie as well. But not this movie in that sense, because the Poseidon Adventure is a movie that has gotten remakes. Usually we don't talk about that until later, but for some reason, there was a remake in 2005, and a remake before that, and a remake called Poseidon in 2006. Well, there was a remake that was a TV miniseries, I believe, and there was a theatrical film remake. And there was a sequel way back when. Was there yeah. a, a third remake? I think there was a third remake, ah. if I'm confirming this correctly. We've got to talk about some of those during the, uh, the final questions, but tell me about the impact this made on you. The result was that the concept of the actual story of the Poseidon Adventure wasn't there, but the concept of boat disaster movie <laughs> being a thing as almost like generic film is somewhere in the back of my mind where it's like, 
you've got a flash animation. When I'm in high school and middle school kind of eras, you've got a flash animation and someone's walking through a theater. Like, boat disaster and a picture of a boat will cover you for Poseidon Adventure, will cover you for Jaws, will cover you for Ghost Ship and all these other things. There's just enough of these that it became ubiquitous. It became generic. And so I'm kind of, I'm fascinated to have seen this now because it's like watching film the film to some extent <laughs> in the way my mind appreciates it. That that is interesting because it it comports with my view that this is of course very influential. It is it is a a movie that I don't know that it's specifically referenced but it did have an impact on popular filmmaking. It was a blockbuster in the decade that kind of gave us blockbusters. People tend to think of movies like Jaws and Star Wars as the 70s movies that invented the modern idea of the blockbuster. <laughs> but the Poseidon Adventure in 72 was was right up there. Yeah, the 70s invented the blockbuster, and then people blame my generation for killing blockbusters. <laughs> so it all comes full circle. <laughs> Yay! So it was fascinating to have a, a vague, incomplete recollection of this movie. And then to sit down and watch it again for the first time in a long time and see how much memory it triggered, but also just to enjoy it as a movie. And I really did enjoy it as a movie. It, okay. it, it holds up. It's dated in many ways, but it holds up. And there are some ways I'll want to talk about in which it was, to me, surprisingly modern. At least my interpretation was it seemed a little bit ahead of its time in terms of some of its characters and how those characters were treated. I will, I'd absolutely agree that this has got a lot of great character. And this is a very character-focused movie. It follows a, a semi-standard disaster premise, which is establish the, establish the people, kind of establish the situation, build the, build the group, cull the group, escape the situation. It's a, it's a pattern that works in this kind of story, and how you present that group, how you attach us to these people, is hugely important. And this movie does a great job in that. I'm going to say, early on here, I felt like it didn't do certain parts right in mm. that structure. And so I'm fascinated to be able to discuss with you, because I was left thinking it did well on some things not happy with others. That really sounds interesting because you highlighted two of the very key elements of this movie, which are, I wouldn't say their intention, but they're balanced very well. And that is, this is a disaster movie. It is a high concept disaster movie, with, which might be uh, redundant. And we should also note that this is made by Irwin Allen. Irwin Allen produced this. And yes, we know Irwin Allen from from things we've talked about on the podcast, including Lost in Space and the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, because the the movie and the TV versions of those, as we've discussed, are very different. When people think of Irwin Allen, this kind of begins the phase of his his career that most people think of most. Because they think of his 70s disaster movies, and he was the master of disaster. And there was some of that in his earlier career, absolutely. But when he brought that to Hollywood and made these big disaster movies, that's what people tend to remember Irwin Allen for. And this is the, the beginning of that, I think. Yeah, his, his filmography is, like, it's so full of... Of this exact kind of thing, and I can understand this fits so perfectly in line with all the rest of it. So it is that high-concept disaster movie, but as you say, it's also a very character-driven movie. Mm-hmm. For a disaster movie, for a story like this, this would work as a radio play. You add a little bit of characters describing things to one another, and a Foley guy who can do echoey sound effects and water. And you could have a good radio play based on this story. I kind of agree with you, but the thing that fell through for me is that I don't think they did enough for me establishing the high concept in the cinematography. Wow, how do you mean? 
I think that this is a wonderful character-focused sh- a movie. And so they do an excellent job through that entire first part, showing us the characters who will be part of our group all throughout the, the boat. But I really wanted more establishment of some of the places we'd experience later oh. during the setup. So to look at this, a disaster movie kind of pits our protagonists versus the antagonist of an environmental situation, a disaster. Hmm. And I feel like the villain in this story, therefore, didn't get enough setup. One of the biggest wide shots I can think of is the giant dance. Because the entire setup of this movie is the boat is, this is the last voyage of the Poseidon before it's decommissioned. Yeah, it's heading to, uh, to, to Greece and a wrecking crew. And at the start of the new year, it's going to be destroyed. And this is its final voyage, and people are celebrating New Year's on this boat. And the company, not caring about the boat because they're going to get rid of it, is pushing to get it there faster. So doing things rough and bullying the, the captain into doing things badly. So they're low on ballast, low on fuel. They want to go full steam ahead because they're, they, they need no. to get this wrecked. Yeah. We, we bought this for the scrap metal, not as a boat. Stop treating it like a boat. Get this scrap metal back to where we bought it. <laughs> and a great portrayal of the captain by Leslie Nielsen. Yes. Well, I don't know that we've seen Leslie Nielsen before. We absolutely will again on the podcast. But this was such a great Leslie Nielsen role. Oh, he as the do, stolid captain. He, he did excellent. An here. early pre-comedy Leslie Nielsen. Yes, I'm. I know him as a comedy guy. So, because I've seen some of his comedy things from later on. So seeing him actually get to be absolutely stern and serious is fun and establishes for me why him breaking to do the comedy later was so impactful. It makes sense to me seeing this now. So to establish things, we do see exterior wide shots of the ship and we do see uh, a lot of scenes at the beginning set on the bridge right we see the bridge but the biggest like inside locations i can think of are there's a big dance for new year's and we get a wide shot but it's focusing at the people and one of the fascinating things about this disaster is on new year's during the party a giant rogue wave from an earthquake hits and flips the boat Completely capsizes, so it is keel up in the water. And that means that this entire thing is our group trying to rush to where they think they can find safety in an upside-down boat. And the fact that it's upside-down doesn't get enough establishment for me. I want to see some of these things right-side-up. I want to see a little bit more of scope and scale. I want the I want the later threats to be foreshadowed better. And that was kind of one of my biggest things that kept pulling me out of this. The stories of the people were great, but I had a hard time connecting with some of those early moments because they did a, so much work focusing on the people, and I felt not enough establishing the antagonist in that sense. So, even if you're supposed to be disoriented, I never got to be oriented in a right way to then be disoriented later i want that i want i want them to establish a baseline to then shake for me because i acclimated to the idea of this is what this room looked like too fast now i liked the fact that every new place that they went into on this ship was new to them and new to us in that you know they were going places not only were they upside down, but they had never seen them when they were right side up. They had never been back in the kitchens or the utility corridors or the engine room. So the fact that they didn't have any idea as to what this should look like to compare to what it looks like now, I can understand that. That said, one of the key parts of their trip is the fact that there is one of the passengers on board who knows a lot about this ship. Yes. And it's the kid. It's little Master Shelby, who is fascinated with boats. And I think he's like supposed to be 11 or 12 or so. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he was fascinated by boats. They do a good job of establishing that as he wants to talk, accept the captain's invitation to come to the bridge and look around and talk to the captain. 
he just times it at the wrong time in the middle of a storm when he's arguing with the uh, the the owner's representative. But we know this kid loves ships. He's fascinated by everything about this ship, from its engines to its design to its architect. And he, uh, we get in conversation through dialogue. We learn he had become friends with like the third engineer, yeah, and had gotten tours of places that passengers usually don't go, like the engine room and the access corridors and the the the, the Broadway, the big access passageway that goes along the the length of the entire ship back to the engine room but it's for crew and service getting a little of that beyond just him telling other people about this getting getting to tag along as the audience on one of his little adventures early on with this third engineer that might have helped i wouldn't want to have seen all the environments that they went into before the disaster okay see for me i wanted i definitely wanted more of that i don't know how much but i didn't feel like i got enough and they do a lot of work with the crew showing us the captain showing us crew early on establishing a wider group of people than the ones that will become our core adventuring group in that sense because the point is part of how many people we lost. Yes, I thought that was well done. We really establish more characters than we need at the beginning because we end up with about 10. Yes, and that drops. Get get out of the uh, the, the, the ballroom mm-hmm. after this uh, disaster hits. Absolutely. And so that establishment, it, this, is a, this is a movie about the people so much. And so we've got this wide group. We get to see the preacher talk with other people and give and there's a service and a sermon that becomes important later we get to see the the business person and the captain fighting we get to see the the couple calling in the the doctor and all of them getting established we get to see all these people in this the ship the the trip's not going great because of the rough seas already and kind of that early establishment very well and i come like i i wanted to add more in there and stretch that part out i guess because they did that part so good establishing the people so that when we lose one to a place it does hit and if you showed someone the first 10 15 minutes of this movie and stopped it and asked them to let you know who's the hero of this movie Oh, I think a fair number of people would say Leslie Nielsen he's the captain who yep. knows what he's doing who has a uh, a, a a physical and metaphorical compass and is finally going to get the the nerve to stand up to the owners in order to save lives. You would have some people, you would have people voting for lots of different characters that we meet as the the hero who we are going to follow and whose journey is going to be important. And the, the surprise of who it turns out to be, I mean, it's not a tremendous surprise. That preacher you mentioned is played by Gene Hackman and you don't yeah. hire him to um, it's especially in the early seventies. You don't hire Gene Hackman to uh, to be killed in the first twenty minutes of the movie. I mean, really, really bold of you. If you did, that would have been a wild power <laughs> move. But no, no one did. So you're right. But they 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 establish all those characters for reasons that drive the story, even though those characters are not around past the uh, the initial disaster. So. The entire boat turning upside down. Now we've got all the people who survive that cataclysmic event, and suddenly, and we're getting these depictions of giant fall of falls now that kill people. Kind of wish I'd seen the ceiling earlier, but we get to see that a lot of people don't make it past that moment. Yes, yeah, some people die during the the wave strike and the the capsizing. Some survive long enough to grab onto tables that are now bolted to the ceiling, but they can't pick themselves up or they can't lower themselves down and they fall. One of the shots that I remember because it was so highlighted in uh, in trailers and things was the person falling the entire height of the ballroom and crashing through the, the faux skylight mm-hmm. in the ceiling. And now we've got, a, and the people who do make it are on the now floor previously sealing have to figure out a way back and we get our first well not our first we get one of our first major points of tension how are you going to approach life how are you going to approach a challenge 
because we mentioned Gene Hackman is playing a preacher, a minister. Mm -hmm. And we see a conversation earlier where he is talking to another clergyman on a board, and they are discussing different views of God and ethics and salvation. And we're learning that Gene Hackman has been stripped of most of his clerical duties and sent off to a mission somewhere, which I'm not sure I understand. This guy has our theology wrong, so let's send him across the world to teach people. I'm not sure I get that. Well, it was kind of a don't put him near us because we don't want to hear it. It was, I guess, very. But his entire thing was, you know, Frank Scott here with his that God helps those who help themselves. Kind God of. wants us to be strong and independent and self-determined, and he's not going to help us just because we're weak. We have to show that we're using everything yeah. he's given us and being tough. Yeah. Huh. Which is definitely an interesting take when faced with this kind of challenge where, you know, suddenly this grand event throws your world literally upside down and how do you, if you're preaching a concept of man of action, take that? Right. And the other minister was, was countering that by saying, well, what about people who simply aren't strong? God still cares about them. God still wants to save them. God will still hear their prayers. He's told us he will hear their prayers. And so that was the tension we get at the beginning. And now with this disaster, we start to see this tension in action. Mm -hmm. Because there are some people who are going to do things by the book stay where they are in the now upside-down ballroom because help will soon be on the way. And the purser, who an, an officer we met briefly earlier, earlier, is kind of leading that and telling people, listen to me, our procedures are we need to stay here. If we stay here, they'll know where to find us and help will find us and we'll be okay. Don't go running off through the ship and getting yourselves killed. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Gene Hackman's character doesn't want to sit and wait for someone else to help he knows we have to get out of here and we have to save ourselves and everybody follow me and not too many people follow him most of them because they are listening to the purser and they say okay we'll do this the way we're supposed to but the other priest is there refusing to leave with the reverend scott and I get the impression he knows that they're doomed staying there. Mm -hmm. He's not staying there because he thinks it's the best chance of survival. He's staying there because he can't leave behind the people who won't or can't leave. He has to stay with them in their final hours and bring them peace. That is what his whole vocation has been about. And suddenly, that's, and suddenly that diverging path of viewpoint becomes a diverging path of action in the face of this. Absolutely. And, and Scott, Hackman's character, responds with this interesting combination of disdain and respect for that point of view and that decision, even though he wants everyone to come with him. Exactly. So Scott's group kind of learning from the young boy that there is a section that is only uh, one inch thick. Yeah, back in the engine room near the propeller shaft outlet. Because of how that's built, it's only one inch thick. If we've got, and that's now on the top above the water if we want to make it that's where we need to go so they have to move through and climb up an upside down ship to get to the the far stern descending higher as they go <laughs> yes exactly right and the variety of people who wind up coming along are fascinating we've got the retired couple uh manny and bell rosen we've got the young boy and his sister and we've got the detective Mike Rogo and his wife, Linda. And Mike Rogo, played by Ernest Borgnine. I would say that most of the, the character conflict in this movie is between Scott and Rogo. Mm -hmm. Rogo, who, he is strong, he is committed, he doesn't like being told what to do. And Scott has, has placed himself as the leader here. and. To the extent that what he does is questioned and, and criticized and sometimes resisted, it, that almost always comes from Rogo. It does. And Rogo is kind, is because we see early on, he's a man who is very, very like angry and energetic about everything. He is, he takes everything 
very, very seriously and personally, but it's all very small things where he calls in his wife. Linda is there kind of like, I'm just a little seasick and everything else. And he is up in arms, up in flames, almost about the fact that, you know, the doctor dealing with all the cases of seasickness that they're going around on these rough seas is not going even further than giving her some seasickness medication and not checking her for illness and everything else. So for him, when he's that intense about the small things right now, he's dealing with the fact that all of that's been wiped away by the big thing. And so his entire attitude is kind of already on thin ice there. But what we also see about his attitude early on is that he is a very passionate person and he is, he can be a compassionate person and he is somebody who loves very deeply. Mm-hmm. And so much of the interaction we see early on is driven by the degree to which and the way in which he loves his wife. Exactly. Who we learn was a prostitute who he kept arresting to try to keep her off the street until he could convince her to marry him because he had fallen in love with her. And he wanted her to feel free to leave that life behind and not be afraid of it coming back to haunt her. And she was concerned that I think somebody on the ship recognized me from what I used to be and all this. So he, he was someone who was, had these walls up and this anger against the whole world, but loved very passionately when something got through those walls. Yes. But a lot of that was very much driven by ego. Mm-hmm. And we also have uh, a young haberdasher, James Martin, and a, a variety of other characters who kind of gather into this group because for, some, for one reason or another for each of them, following frank scott up into the deeper parts of the ship is what they choose and we have carol lindley playing the singer from the dance band and one of those characters i want to highlight you mentioned red button's character a mr martin the haberdasher yes this was a movie back in 1972 and they establish very very directly in early conversations that he is a a lifelong bachelor in the well, he's in the fashion business, to the extent that matters. And we learn that he has had a loss. You get the impression it was a lost love. There's so much about this character that, that seems to me, to the extent they could in a Hollywood movie in 1972, this was a, a man who was gay, mm. who had had a rough life, but had found a way to live his life with a degree of, of peace and satisfaction but not without sadness. Yeah. And I may be just totally reading things in there that were not in the script, that were not in the acting choices. I'm just fabricating this. But it seems to me that those are components of this character. But the fact that we don't know, really, and it doesn't matter, would make this a a wonderful representation of uh, of of a gay man in ni- a 1972 movie. Absolutely. It's not it doesn't define his character. It's part of who he is if it even is anything about who he is. We're describing and discussing all these characters, but there are aspects of all of them that are established only to be washed away and not be and be true but or possibly true but not important. To what they're going through now. Yes. And that's a huge part in making these characters feel as complete as they are and making the difficulties they do go through have more weight. Later. Yes. You'd be hard pressed to find an unambiguously gay character in, in that time period for whom it wasn't either something sinister or there for comedy. Mm-hmm. And here's neither. He's just a guy. Yeah. In as much danger and in as terrible a situation as everyone else. That's just this person. And he turns out, if I had to pick who really is the hero of this movie, who does more to save more people, it might be him. I think so. He's the one who first has the idea, we should go up. Mm -hmm. He's the one who keeps finding and figuring out how to use things to help them on their journey. Martin is just an absolute key player in saving everyone who gets saved he is huge in this this is kind of our our group of people who use a christmas tree 
to work their way up from the bottom of the ballroom and then start making their way through. But immediately after getting up top, there's in a series of explosions and water starts flooding in and the, the two paths immediately, the risk and danger is amplified by seeing one of those paths destroyed and the people there dying. Yeah, they're still within view of the ballroom when they see it, the walls collapse and the sea rush in. And then they are racing against the encroaching seawater and racing through the dangerous environment of the ship. Mm -hmm. As the ship sinks and lurches and moves as well, it is not a static environment anymore. It is filling, it is changing, and it is collapsing around them. And the farther they go, of course, it's a story. You've got to have increasing difficulty and increasing stakes as you go. The farther they go on their journey, the more difficult things get. And eventually they get to a point where sacrifices have to be made, where people don't survive either because they succumb to the dangers of the journey or because they choose to do things that they know are either high or certain risk and choose to do them to, uh, to save the others. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a series of choices about life and death and sacrifice and who is holding others back just by being around and who by staying, staying with the group wind up being part of their salvation, even though they felt like they were, they were holding people back. And there's some moments that are, they're amazingly impactful. I mentioned earlier that we've got the retired couple of Manny and his wife, Belle. And there is that, there is that bit where seeing the engine room on the other side of the corridor Belle tells everyone about the fact that she was a competitive swimmer. Yes, they've got to go down and through a, a flooded passage and then back up in order to, uh, to get where they need to go. But her being this older retired lady, Scott refuses and goes in and then gets hurt and trapped. And she then does the exact thing again and not only gets through, but saves Scott only to die of a heart attack on the other side. And that is showing the tremendous weakness of Scott, which is he must always be the one who is strong. He can't let anyone else do something. He's got to be the leader. He's got to be the strong one. He cannot defer to someone else's greater skill and ability. Mm -hmm. Not that it was a clear thing that this elderly lady who they keep talking about her being overweight, and she keeps talking about her being overweight, that she was still the athletic person who won a swimming trophy decades ago. But he wouldn't even let her try. He just wouldn't listen to the idea that someone else could do this pivotal thing. It almost killed him. It almost wrecked everybody's chance for survival until she went in and saved him and thereby saved everyone else. Mm-hmm. But we get scenes like that as they climb through shafts, as they work their way through rooms. And we, we watch as they, they come across challenges and... We lose people to the dangers, but we also see different personalities, different philosophies tackling these in parallel. And it's almost disorienting the degree to which, yeah, we lose people along the way. So many of those losses come at the very end as they're getting into the engine room. Yes. But I guess that's the, the, the difficulty and the stakes get higher and higher the closer you get to your goal. Mm -hmm. And then at that very end, as we're getting towards the, the final spot is where all of the people we've lost in this, all of the, the tragedy going on, it kind of comes to a head in Scott. He expresses anger at God. Mm-hmm. Like how many sacrifices do you need? How many people need to die? When so much of that seems to me that so much of that is clearly directed at himself. Yeah. How could I not have been strong enough to save everybody who chose to follow me? How could some of them have died? And when his entire thing before was the fact that this strength will be the thing to save you, he's acknowledging all of these people were strong and still had this happen to them. Yes. All these people who followed with still had tragedy 
and it puts that entire thing into question of yeah. the the what this meant how could you say you know god helps those who are strong and these people died therefore they weren't strong enough he saw how strong they were mm-hmm. he's there facing the fact that this older woman did the swimming he's facing the fact that people were climbing and pushing themselves to their limit through places upside down and not meant for this and yeah he may have been a young adult man in good shape this tapped his reserves of strength far less than it tapped the reserves of the people following him mm-hmm. and he makes a final act to help clear a path through you know, burning steam and engine issues to give them a way to get to that thin section of the hull that scene that shot where he makes that final sacrifice is one of the few that i really remembered clearly from having seen this when i was seven years old it is brilliantly framed i will say there's this v- giant valve handle that needs to be turned but it's it can't be reached from any place you can stand because it's not designed yeah everything is upside down so he jumps to it grabs onto it and turns it with his body weight as he's railing against god and giving that speech and 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 hanging over a pit of water covered in engine oil that has caught fire and then once that is done and he's he's cleared the pathway for everyone else so that the burning steam is uh, is no longer in their way he can't get back to anywhere to stand Mm-hmm. falls to his death i remember that shot and that scene so very very vividly i didn't remember that it was gene hackman's character yeah in my mind i my memory was that this was ernest borgnine's character who made that sacrifice oh really I was wow totally wrong changes the movie tremendously that it's reverend scott who makes that sacrifice <laughs> it's better but it's funny how the little bit of memory i had was that wrong i mean i'm gonna this is no offense to either man. Gene Hackman being able to do the fatal ninja warrior move fits in my mind better <laughs> than seeing Ernest Borgnine do it at that point, even with both of them, for some reason. That's but, a good point. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is absolutely a... But I can, ima- I can imagine how that would be kind of almost an unexpected retwist by memory for you, <laughs> rewatching this. And, uh, and they do get to the very end of the ship where the propellers protrude and the kid was right this is the thinnest part of the ship and so it's where they cut through and there are people outside trying to help them yes and and when they communicate with banging on pipes there the the rescuers can are able to cut through and and rescue them and um how many are with you six that's all that sir the rescuers have not found anyone else. Yeah. <sighs> so, yeah, it goes from, from hundreds or thousands who are on this ship to six people who survived. And they survived because they listened to and followed Reverend Scott, even though Scott didn't survive to the end. Yeah. And all of them have kind of gotten a change in perspective. The brother and sister who still make it put aside the little differences that were making them argue at the start and kind of acknowledge each other as helping and being supportive to each other. Rogo lets things be and kind of cares without the anger in some ways. He changes his approach and his passion stays and has a better outlet to his world, I thought, at the end. And even our our old man Manny Rosen, who just lost his wife seeing her do all this, goes from this, oh yeah, we're retired at the end, kind of, ah, oh, there's not much going on in our life anymore, to no, I still have life to live for more than one reason. There's, like, I'm not at the end, I'm at a part of my journey. And that's a difference in his approach. Yes, and he has a very specific mission given to him mm-hmm. by, by his wife, Belle. They were headed to Greece as the first part of their trip to Israel to see their grandson for the first time. And before she dies, she gives something to Scott to give to her husband because there's something he needs to do. He needs to see their grandson for, for, for her and as well as for himself. 
and he needs to give her this high uh, pendant, a symbol of living, mm-hmm. of life. Give this to our grandson for me. So she is not gone. She is now embodied in this mission that, that Manny has. Yes. And that whole setup, like, you get to see how all the people who made it are changed by this. And that's a big part of this movie. Very much. And watching the movie this, this time, again, first time since it's, it, it opened, the structure of it, like, snapped into focus for me. This was very much an allegorical, for me at least, an allegorical journey of salvation. Mm-hmm. Very specific imagery, too. How did they start their journey? By climbing up a Christmas tree. Yeah. The first step towards the, the enactment of, of salvation. They climb that Christmas tree, and what do they then have to do? They have to go through hell. Mm-hmm. They have to go through the kitchen, which is upside down and filled with burned dead bodies with gouts of flame all around them. And you mentioned earlier they have to descend upward. Yeah. In order to reach salvation. It was such a pilgrim's progress kind of journey where every single every single area that they had to go through, everything I keep thinking in terms of levels and video games. Same. Every, I kept thinking that too. <laughs> every single area they had to go with was characterized by some new bit of narrative symbolism, be it water or air or fire. Or there's a point at which they come across a whole bunch of people who are following the ship's doctor, who is leading them forward to the bow of the ship, because that's where the, the, we're going to find a control room, that's where people are going to look for us, that's where our salvation leads. They're going in the opposite direction from the, the characters who we've been following, and some in the group we've been following start to question whether they should continue with Reverend Scott. And maybe they should follow these people. It's like they've, they've, found, they've, they've encountered the lost souls who are going the wrong way, and they're being tempted to follow them in the wrong direction. Yeah, this is absolutely, this plays with allegory so much, I will agree. And there's this variety of people here, of different walks of life, all having to encounter this and having their philosophies challenged and changed on that same path. So absolutely. Well, I think we might be getting towards our final questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so stay tuned for those. But in the meantime, we want to let you know that if you would like more of the Intermillennium Media Project, go to immproject.com. That's where you will see all of our uh, past episodes, including at least one past episode with Ernest Borknine, because he was also in... Ice Station Zebra? Yes, Ice Station Zebra. Yeah, what's with Ernest Borgnine underwater? <laughs> Why is that a running theme for us? I, 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 I eagerly await our first dry Ernest Borgnine film. <laughs> so at the website, www.immproject.com, you'll find all those past episodes. You'll also find a link to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you there. You'll find a link to our uh, contact page where you can send us messages and you'll find our P.O. Box, if you want to send us honest-to-goodness physical mail. Oh, my goodness. And you'll also find a link to our shop if you like T-shirts and coffee mugs and fun things like that uh, that also help support the, uh, the podcast. And finally, you will find there a link to our Patreon, where you can both support the show, help me subject Ian to more 20th century media, and get additional audio content. Exactly. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found at itemcrafting.com or as itemcrafting most places. I can also be found as itemcrafting live on Twitch. And you can find me as by Matthew Porter. So go to bymatthewporter.com. You'll see links to anything I'm doing online. And I'm also by Matthew Porter on YouTube, where you will find the Draft House Diary video series, where I document every one of my visits to the Alamo Drafthouse Cinemas, both here in Colorado and wherever my travels take me. So, it's time for final questions. Final questions. Hmm. Screen or no screen? Oh, this is so difficult. I very much enjoyed the people portion of this, but that establishment, 
it kept knocking me out of it. That thing I was describing earlier about wanting to have had these places beforehand so that I could be disoriented by them later. That description of them being like video games. I established, okay, this is the level in my head too quickly. Hmm. And so I needed, I needed the right side up version so that the upside down version felt wrong. And I kind of want to say no screen because I want to know, I want to see a version that does that better, but I'm so nervous that any of the remakes, any of those things I described as establishing the concept of boat disaster (laughs) early, like at the start of this episode, I'm worried that they might not do the people as well. So I'm stuck right in the middle. It's a screen for the people, but I don't know if it's a screen for the disaster. Yeah, I can understand that. The the whole broken up into levels video gamey kind of thing that wasn't a thing in 1972, but I was probably it I was it, the movie was probably saved for me by my tending to break it down into chapters which go along with that seeing it as a, an old style allegorical novel of of theology. But I can understand that. It's I say screen but be ready for certain filmmaking choices that aren't kind of of their time and were even a little bit uneven and 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 even lacked a certain amount of continuity for their time okay. so mm. and that brings up revive reboot or rest in peace and you can tell us about the efforts to revive and or reboot already well this entire film is based on a novel by paul gallico in 1969 the Poseidon adventure has been adapted three times so 1972 then the made for tv the poseidon adventure in 2005 starring adam baldwin and uh steve gutenberg rutger hauer so some big names on that but then it was also adapted in 2006 as just poseidon they dropped the the adventure port- portions. And that was a theatrical film, wasn't it? That was a theatrical film starring Kurt Russell, <laughs> John Luke, Josh Lucas, Richard Dreyfus, and Emily Rosen. And just a year apart in release. Yeah. There's something interesting going on there in terms of rights and production schedules and things. I'd be interested to hear the story behind that. Uh, that makes me want to calculate like how long until we get another Poseidon adventure, though. Apparently it's... <laughs> Something was right there that meant it had to happen, so maybe we've got another one coming down the road. But I don't know anything about these other versions. And it definitely the fact that it comes from a book, though, means that I feel its chances of getting remade again are higher. This was an excellent character piece, and its allegorical nature, as we described, was was so well done, but also so rich. My vote is uh, to uh, reboot, to make it again. That's also because I know of After the Poseidon Adventure. (laughs) Which is a revival in our terms. Yeah. It's a sequel. Which I read one or two lines of plot for and immediately cringed away. Yeah, I've never, never seen this. It seems like it is just an attempt to grab some more box office money from the Tremendous popularity of, of the first movie. Yeah. Okay, but it's like okay. a spy thriller where someone is going to try to salvage Poseidon and they find more survivors. Yeah. Well, not kind of. Beyond the Poseidon Adventure is what it's called. Here it is. When a tugboat, her, a tugboat captor spots the rescue helicopter and finds the shipwreck, he heads out to claim salvage rights. But... There's other groups going for the boat as well. Some of them hoping to look for more survivors who might be still trapped somehow. Others, because the shady corporation that had purchased and was going to scrap the Poseidon was using it to smuggle plutonium. (laughs) And so they're here to sneak and steal the plutonium that was hidden in the ballasts they didn't want to use. Wow. 
which is just such a contextualizational <laughs> trip. I don't know what to say. And I'm partially scared of the remakes because I don't know if they pull from the sequel. <laughs> if they pull from the sequel, I'm scared. And I don't know. Well, listeners, if you have seen either Beyond the Poseidon Adventure or either of the remakes, let us know on Discord or through the contact page uh, what you think of it. Do, were, are they worth watching? Did you like them? Should we stay away? I'm, I, gonna, I'm curious. I, I read this and I had this concerning flash in my mind of opening up the the podcast P.O. box and just getting a, a, a plain brown box that had nothing but a single copy of Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> and it felt like getting the cursed tape from the ring in my mind. I don't know why, but I've got severe trepidation about this. So right. mine is a Mine is a reboot, and a please don't touch beyond. <laughs> <laughs> well, when Mrs. Darling Wife are, uh, are on our cruise in December, we will uh, keep an eye out for plutonium. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I would say that, um, I would say rest in peace. Okay. I could, I could see the movie being rebooted, re being remade, another adaptation of this story but there's so much that i wouldn't want to change in the original that i wouldn't feel i obviously i didn't feel compelled to watch any remakes and i don't think i would going forward so i would say uh the poseidon adventure can rest in peace okay and with that i think we're heading into port I think we are. We've I think that about wraps it up for this episode of the IMMP podcast. I agree. This was this was an interesting one to get to see, and I'm I'm intrigued by next time we get to do an aquatic thing because I feel like every time we have a water based show, it seems to be an intense one for us. <laughs> yes, it does. We're it in does. a very dry state, and we get a lot of <laughs> water based movies. Yes. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to that, but our next episode is going to be at the beginning of the holiday season. So we have plans for that, and uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>